If you haven't figured it out the last several weeks, we have these um, outlines. They're on the inside of every aisle. And if you would like one of those, just bump the person at the end of the aisle and tell them to, to give you one. Um, going back several years ago, um, I had maybe the worst birthday present I have ever received. And I got it um, four days early. I had a massive bicycle crash um, in a ride where I was, at the time, going about 30 miles an hour on my bike and hit and went over the handlebars and completely um, felt like I tore up everything in my body. But the thing that was the worst was my shoulder. And in that crash, I tore my shoulder, my labrum, and I ended up having to have surgery on it. And the recovery was, was really difficult. If you've ever had shoulder surgery, getting the mobility back and, and being able to do things and gaining the strength back to where it feels like normal. And I remember going to rehab the first time and, and going through these exercises where they're having you lift and move your arm that's been immobile for a while and just stuck basically to the front of your body. And, and saying to the, the therapist, that really hurts. And he looked at me and said, well, it's supposed to hurt. And, and in my mind, I knew that. It's got to hurt if it's going to get better. There, there's going to be pain if I'm going to get mobility back, if I'm going to get strength, if it's going to get back to where it feels like normal. I knew that in my mind. And he told me that, well, you got to go to just the edge of that pain to where you can stand it. And then we got to let off. And we're going to have to keep doing that time after time again. And as we get better, stronger flexibility and mobility and all of those things start coming back, then you'll start feeling more like yourself again. And he was right. But I can tell you, going to rehab, while it was one of my most favorite things, it was also one of the things I dreaded the most. I loved it because I knew I could work hard, and it depended on me to get better. There was no one else that could really affect that. My, my therapist could push me, he could encourage me, he could do all those things, but it was up to me to do something to get better, to get stronger, and to get back. But I, I'll never forget that phrase, it's supposed to hurt. This is not going to feel good. It's not intended to just be a walk in the park. And, and I think as we talk about fixing our thoughts and fixing our mind, we, we remember that our strongest thoughts move us in a certain direction. They, they help determine the direction that we're going to go. And as we seek to get better, it's going to be difficult. It's going to hurt. And I think at times we have this warped perception of what life is supposed to be like. We have this warped perception that, that especially, I think, when we decide we're going to follow Jesus, that life is going to get simpler, that things are going to start to smooth out, and things are going to go the way that we think and assume they would because we assume that God would act in the way that we want Him to or think He would. But it's that warped perception 
that I think makes it difficult at times for us as followers of Jesus. Because here's the truth. Whether you follow Jesus or not, life is going to be difficult. Whether you follow Jesus or not, there are going to be hard times. There are going to be those difficult days, weeks, months, and maybe even years. Where where we question and where we doubt and we wonder where God is at. And one of the things I think that has created this This warped perception is what one sociologist called a perfect storm. This perfect storm that began from 1700 to about 1900 with what was called the Industrial Revolution. And with the Industrial Revolution, we began to to get things, become consumers, Because we could mass produce things for the first time in history. It wasn't just what you were able to do and provide for your family. We actually got to help with that. And so the Industrial Revolution made us consumers. And it began to shape this brand new identity for us. Where we start to acquire things. So I acquire And then that starts to shape my identity and how I see myself and how I see my place in the world. And then fast forwarding to the 1960s and the sexual revolution, where sex became casual, where where it wasn't as big of a deal, where pornography increased, where divorce increased, where things were about pleasure. And it began to add to this identity that we now acquire pleasure. Then fast forward just a little bit further to the 1980s to even into the present day in this technological revolution where now everything we want is just a click away. Everything is right there at our fingertips. If you forgot to go to the store, you can order it online and they'll run it out to your car and you can pick it up in less than an hour. Or you don't have to get out of your house, and Amazon can have it there the very next day. And so now it's not just that I acquire things, now I acquire things quickly. And it shapes this identity of I acquire pleasure quickly. And and stop and think for just a second. No, No matter how old you are, my guess is part of this identity has seeped into your world and your life. Where you start to think that the world revolves around you and getting what you want, the way you want it, quickly. Advertisers everywhere capitalize on that. Right? My my kids can quote, all the commercials. You know, Burger King, have it your way. We understand that this has shaped our identity in such a profound way. But I think we've missed it. I don't think at times we realize it. And so when I go through difficult times, when you go through difficult times, our default thinking 
is that I acquire pleasure quickly. Which means I should be able to get out of this spot in an instant. I want things to get well. I want things to get better. I want things to improve. And my assumption is it will happen the way I think it will, when I think it should, and it's going to be done fast. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that life is nothing like that false sense of identity. We know there is nothing quick, there is nothing painless, there is nothing simple and easy about life. It is difficult. And when we decided, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been buried with him in baptism and raised into a new life, when you made that decision, you joined your life together with a crucified Jesus. A Jesus who went to the cross. A Jesus who said, Father, forgive them. I, they don't know what they're doing. A father, a, a guy who said, a, a Jesus who said, excuse me, a Jesus who said, if there's any way that you could take this cup away from me, let it be so. And a Jesus who looked at every single one who would follow him and said, take up your cross and follow me. A Jesus who said the road is always going to be difficult. There is always going to be pain. There is always going to be potholes. There is always going to be difficulty. But follow me. And more often than not, I think in our life we find ourselves in pits. These places where we are broken and hurting and looking for a way out. And it seems like the walls on every side grow higher and thicker and more difficult to move out of. For, for the psalmist David, his words ring so true. Because I think all of us have been in these places. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock. And he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. And, and the part of that, that that speaks powerfully to me is that David says he lifted me out of the pit. The part I hate is how he begins. I waited patiently on the Lord. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm in pain and when I'm hurting, patience is not the greatest virtue in my life. When things are not going well, patience does not just pour out of my soul. If anything, it's probably the exact opposite. It's impatience. 
And my prayers become, God, I need you to get me out of this place now. I need you to take me away from here and get me to a better place now. And my experience has been that doesn't happen quickly. My my experience is much more like rehab where it is a process. And newsflash. It's going to hurt. It's not going to be an easy journey. And that identity that has shaped so much of us is completely contrary to so much of what we see in Scripture. Do you realize how many people through the pages of Scripture are in pits? There there are lots of people in these physical pits. But take Abraham for existence, a man who who left everything he owned, his family, left it all behind because God said he was going to make him this new nation and give him a family, and he left everything behind and began to follow, not knowing where he was going. And for years, decades, never had children. I am sure at times looking over his shoulder wondering, God, where are you in this moment? Where are you? Where are my kids? Or Jacob, who basically betrayed his brother, who created an alter identity and then had to run from that identity for years and years and years. And you think, well, that was just some foolish young kid. Jacob and Esau were around 70 or 80 years old. When they had their blow up and Jacob ran for his life to live in a foreign land. And there's Joseph. Joseph who was literally thrown into a pit by his own brothers and left to die. Sold into slavery and then finds himself where it seems like God's face is shining on him and he's risen to this powerful place only to be thrown back into a pit where he finds himself in prison wondering what the future holds. Moses, who leaves Pharaoh's household and wanders in the desert leading in grateful, ungrateful, and complaining people for 40 years. For Joshua, who is now tasked to lead these people into a land that was not their own at the time. Land they didn't possess. With so many questions. And Moses, who had been right by his side, now gone. David, who committed adultery and then tried to cover it up by having Bathsheba's husband murdered. Only to find out that God saw everything that he had done. The prophet Jeremiah, who struggled with depression. Daniel, who found himself in a lion's den. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who found themselves in a fiery furnace. Paul, who was blind for three days and could not see and had his world turned upside down and then decided to follow Jesus only to encounter beatings, imprisonment, shipwrecks, the apostles who gave up everything to follow Jesus had their world turned upside down when he was crucified and placed in a tomb. And they were searching and wondering. And then Jesus himself, who in a garden prays, Father, if there's any way for this cup to be taken away from me, please take it away. Ultimately leading to the darkest pit of all, death. We assume that so much of our life is supposed to be easy and full of pleasure and quick and painless. But so much of Scripture tells an alternate story. A story of pain and heartache, but a story of hope. Not because the pit is so dark, but because there is one who is there in the pit. As they say in Daniel, or in Shadrach, Meshach, one who looks like the Son of Man, who is there, standing by their side. One who looks like the Son of Man who is standing there shutting the mouths of lions. One who is leading Abraham and Moses and Joshua. One who is reconciling Jacob and Esau. One who was willing to go through the darkness and the hard times so that he could stand with us in our darkness and difficulties. You see, the pit will shape and transform our identity as disciples of the crucified Jesus unlike anything else. Because to follow Jesus is to join with Him in taking up our cross and walking through the difficult days and continuing to move forward with hope that He still resurrects and He still redeems and He still holds the world in His hands. It does not mean the darkness will not come, but it does mean the light of the world will light your path. To get involved with Jesus is to get involved with the cross. Paul says it so beautifully in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. He says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough for you. And I think, how many times, how often do I forget that? Because I would really like this verse to say, my grace is sufficient for you, plus, and just fill in the blank. My, my grace is enough for you, plus an easy life free of pain. My grace is enough as long as I have abundance and everything is well. My grace is sufficient for you as long as I have my health or my finances or my job. But he says, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. See, this is Jesus Telling Paul, reminding him, as he begs and pleads for God to take this thorn away, that my grace will sustain you. My grace is enough. My grace will do its part in your life. And it will be enough for you. I want you to think about the most recent pit you've been in. Maybe it's in one you're in right this moment. Maybe you're several years on the other side of it. Maybe it's one that you've been in for a really, really long time. Maybe the pit of depression and anxiety. Maybe the pit is singleness and continuing to follow Jesus when you think the plan should work out a different way. Maybe it's the other direction. Maybe it's a broken marriage where you come every week with smiles on your faces but you walk out of here with your marriage just hanging by a thread. Maybe divorce or a job loss or a job that, that you cannot stand. Maybe it's being alone, wondering if anyone else notices you. Maybe it's sickness and not having the answers. Not having the answers when you want them, how you want them. Not having healing the way you think it should happen, when you think it should happen. Maybe it's the loss of a spouse. The loss of a child. I think one of the hardest pits is waiting. Just waiting for God to show up, for God to answer. And you hear David's words, I waited patiently on the Lord, 
and you think, that's not what I'm doing. But it's that waiting that produces the patience. And regardless of what that pit is in your life or when you went through it or even if you're still in it, I can promise you one thing, the pit will find you. You are not promised life that's going to be easy. Dads, maybe one of our greatest jobs, maybe one of our greatest tasks is to lead and point our family through those pits. To lead our family when we're still in the pit. Not pointing them to our strength. Saying that we're sufficient. Pointing them to Jesus, whose grace is sufficient. And pointing to our weakness, which makes Christ's power beautiful. But one thing I can promise you is there is purpose in the pit. And I want to give you three words this morning. Three words to just kind of reflect on and meditate on throughout this week. As you experience life in the pit. Those three words are meaning, love, and virtue. And I want to kind of work through them one at a time real quickly. The first is meaning. As I said, there's purpose, there's reason. Paul seems to have figured out for him what the purpose was in the pit. He says in 2 Corinthians verse 7, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, there, there was meaning for it. There was a purpose behind it. And ultimately, skipping ahead to verse 9, to show him that his grace is sufficient, And that Christ's power is made perfect in his weakness. Maybe one of the meanings that we learn in the pit is it's not our power. It's not our strength. But it's Christ's. It's Christ living in us, empowering us, healing us, redeeming us. Lifting us out of the mud and mire. And setting us on the solid rock. The second word is love. Because ultimately, the purpose of your life as a follower of Jesus is to love this world well. As you are an example and a light of Christ. To love those well who you don't get along with, that you don't agree with, who hurt you who betray you, who turn their back on you, who leave you alone and naked and confused and searching. And the call of Jesus is to love them. And everything within us in the pit wants to go the entire opposite direction because the greatest concern in the pit becomes inward. It becomes me taking care of myself and my needs. 
But I think what Christ teaches us more in the pit than any other place is this all-surpassing love that he has for us that we are to take into this world. And one of the greatest ways that we free ourselves from the pit is learning to love in those moments as Christ loves us. One of the greatest ways that Christ will grow you as a disciple of his is teaching you to love those who seem unlovable in the darkest moments of our life. John, as Jesus is preparing for this road to the cross, this difficult journey, and he's leaving this message with his disciples who he knows are going to be alone and afraid. And they're fixing to experience this incredibly dark pit. He says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Going on. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. That he commissions them, he commands them to love one another well in the darkness they're fixing to experience. And then the third word is virtue. And it's a word that that we don't use very often. Um, But it's this idea of this transforming character. This transforming character where it's not something we're striving for any longer. But it's what God is transforming us into through His power in the darkness of the pit. In 2 Peter, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And and the word actually there is virtue. And to goodness or virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, Love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from becoming or being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But who do, whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. That it's in the pit that God grows us in goodness and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love. That He's moving us through those times with a purpose to grow. See, I remember back to some of those pits that I've been through in my life. Some of those dark nights. Some of those times of questioning. And the amazing thing about them is as much as I hated going through those times, they are by far the most transformative times in my life. They are the times that Christ seems to just pick me up and pull me together and help me 
walk each and every day step by step following and trusting Him. Because everything within me says that brokenness is a problem. That not having it all together and not having strength to stand on my own, that is the problem. And it seems what Paul figured out in those places was that is where Christ's power is magnified for the world to see. That is where I truly find out that His grace is sufficient for me. See, it's those dark places I think that we truly learn that God can be trusted. That He will lead us into those places that we don't want to go because He's changing us. And we've said time and time again, and hopefully you're, you're kind of getting tired of hearing me say this, but I just I want to remind you again, God will take you to places you have chosen not to go in order to produce in you what you're incapable of producing on your own. The Bible calls that grace. He will take you to those places that you would never choose to go on your own in order to get you there, to meet you there, and produce something within you that you are incapable of doing on your own. And as much as we, hurt, we, we hate those dark places, as much as they hurt, I think it's where we find God's beauty on display. The Japanese have an ancient practice. It's an art form. It's called kitsugi. And the story goes years and years ago, centuries and centuries ago, an emperor dropped his favorite bowl and it was broken. And not wanting to get rid of it, he had it sent back to his home country to some craftsmen. And he said, I would really like you to mend my bowl. In fact, because it was broken and pieced back together, now it is even more beautiful than ever before. There is beauty in the broken. We want... People to feel like we have it all together. And that everything in our life is okay. But the beauty of the church is it is a collection of broken people. Of people who are hurting. Of people who are searching. Of people who are needing healing. 
but are a people who are met in that brokenness by God and pieced back together. And this morning, if you're in that place of brokenness, if you're in that pit, I would love to pray for you. So would you join me? Father, Abba, we thank you that you hear us. And Father, for right now, for those who are out here who are in the pit, who are going through really difficult days, Father, I pray that your power would make itself known in a beautiful way. And Father, that they would find that their brokenness is not the end of the story. Because you are the God who puts broken pieces back together. And you are redeeming us. You are reaching down into the pit, setting our feet on a rock. And Father, daily we were reminded that it is your strength, your power, that gives us hope. That it's not our weak vessels of clay. Father, for those who have gone through those times and come out on the other side, we thank you. We thank you that their story is a reminder of your goodness and your faithfulness. It's a reminder to those of us who find ourselves in those dark pits right now that we can trust you. And we know that there are others who will walk by our side. Father, we thank you for the blessing of each day. As hard as it may be, we pray, Father, though, that you would stand by our side and you would hold us up when we can't stand on our own. Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing and redeeming. We pray this in Jesus' most powerful name. Amen. If you've never given your life to Christ, we want to offer you that opportunity today. Simply to come to Him broken and allow Him to wash over you. To be baptized into the name of Jesus and be part of this broken put back together family. And if we could pray for you, I'm going to have our shepherds and their wives at the back of the room. If we could do anything just to pray for you, to talk with you, encourage you, we would love to do that while we stand and sing.